On an early spring day in 1968, Dennis Wilson drove his Ferrari down the Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu. The drummer for the Beach Boys has, had recently divorced his wife Carol, and the Beach Boys themselves as a band were in a rough spot musically and emotionally. Dennis was the most handsome member of the band, as well as being known as both a wild child and a ladies' man. So when Dennis saw two hitchhiking girls on the side of the road, he stopped and picked them up. The two girls were Ella Jo Bailey and Patricia Krenwinkel. The three headed off to Wilson's rustic log cabin mansion compound that had been built by humorous Will Rogers at 14400 Sunset Boulevard. We're listening to Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drells from Spring 1968. This is the story we've been told for now over 50 years about how Dennis Wilson meets Charlie Manson and all its fallout. I almost perpetuated the story myself, for that matter, until I reached out again to author and friend of Charlie's, Nicholas Schreck. Nicholas Schreck is the author of several books, including The Manson File, Myth and Reality of an Outlaw Shaman, in 1989, he released the documentary film, Charles Manson Superstar. He is also a musician who in 1984 founded the LA-based group Radio Werewolf and now performs either solo or with various groups, including Kingdom of Heaven. Nicholas and I spoke for a few hours and discussed the Dennis Wilson-Charlie Manson relationship. Naturally, the conversation touched on people connected with his story, some of whom I've discussed in previous episodes, some people yet to come. This is my interview with Nicholas Schreck. Every single thing that you have been told about the connection between Dennis and Charlie and the Beach Boys is a lie. Every single thing. All of it, right. their connection, how much they liked his music, how much they recorded. Was there a connection between them and the murders? Yes. Right. Did they know all about the murders the day after? Yes. They are deeply, it, and, and, and something, when you read my book, you'll see, Charlie even said, why don't they call it the Beach Boys murders? Because that's what it is. And he explained why that is. Um, it, it connects to every single part of the crimes. You know, and what I want to make clear is without Dennis Wilson, none of this happens. Right. His, he is the bad luck that introduces Charlie to everybody that led to the disaster. And there's no reason that Manson had to end up in this situation. It really is. He gets involved with Will. I think it's the horrible. There are two terrible karmas of Roman Polanski and the Beach Boys. And those two suck Charlie into them. It isn't like they, the way people look at it, like he sucked them into his evilness. On the contrary, he would just be an, an ordinary criminal and, and he probably would have had a musical career had it not turned into that. So like everything you know? we've been told is kind of to protect, uh, you know, it, the, it, it seems, it, I don't know why the Beach Boys were so important to protect, but everyone sure the hell went out of their way. And so many people, hundreds of people in California that I've talked to them knew it was a lie. You know, they watched that trial. They watched the way it's being reported and they knew this is bullshit. Charlie was right there with these people. They loved him. They were fucking him and taking drugs with him, you know, doing everything with pushing him, supporting him. Right. The the bass player who's the, the session musician for the Beach Boys. Oh, from the record. You know, she, she, yeah, Carol she was Pan, introduced yep. to Charlie at Capitol Records by Brian right. and he said, This guy's gonna be the next big thing of the seventies. Right, right. So, anyway, so, let's mean, we, we can begin whenever wherever you want to begin. We yeah, can. basically with where I almost made a 
uh, a big mistake in trying to tell this story accurately. Um, and I like to think I knew, you know, I know a little bit about the case. Um, I almost told the like the hitchhiking story. I mean, he's Dennis Wilson is just like at the center of all of it. The, yeah, the linchpin. And if yeah, I mean, you can see how immediately in Helter Skelter they're trying to do uh, the in, you know the music industry. Uh, they're whitewashing the story by making it sound so haphazard and like innocent by uh meeting on the road hitchhiking when in reality uh well uh, there's there are several things going on there which i'll discuss is oh dennis it was all about he just liked girls he didn't like charlie but the fact is he and charlie had a homosexual relationship right and dennis was a tortured bisexual who would fuck anything that moved but he had a relationship with altabelli Right. He a long term relationship and a lot of it has to do with the gay underworld that was happening around Altabelli at Cielo. It has to do with gay porn, yep. which Charlie was involved in, and Charlie being in prison, recognizing closeted men and exploiting them, basically. Sure. Exploiting them and all of that. Here's a forgotten hit. Does your mama know about me? by Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's, featuring Tommy Chong on guitar, from April 1968. So yeah, do you think um, it's been discussed that um, that Charlie and Tex may have had a uh, relationship going beyond just uh, a criminal one, but uh, a romantic one? Uh, do you think yes. that's also how Tex Absolutely. and uh, Dennis? Uh, no, no doubt about it. Right, and leading Charlie, back to Rudolph. Okay, even in public, Charlie hinted at this, but his admirers and the, the people who, who just whitewash him and see him, you know, as the way they want to see him, ignore his own statements. Right, right. I mean, he talked about this in great detail to me, and he had no shame about anything to do with any sexual issue whatsoever. He yeah. talked very bluntly and openly about all of this. But, Charlie, that, oh, sorry. Uh, there, there's a part you may remember in the Geraldo Rivera interview with Charlie Charlie calls Tex Watson a rumpkin, which is old prison slang for a homosexual, and not only a homosexual, a punk, right, uh, right. A, a bottom. Yep. So that's, he says it right there. Geraldo Rivera says, what are you saying? He's gay? And Manson says, well, whatever gay is. Exactly. And it's right there. It's in the interview. And he made several other mentions. He was a mama's boy. He was, I mean, if you know Charlie and, and you know what he's getting dream, at. That kind of thing when he says Yeah, that. and he, he was, a, he was a, a woman in a man's body. Right, right. This was someone insecure about his sexuality who wanted to, who for some reason fell in love with Linda Kasabian of all horrific people and wanted to impress her and wanted at a time when there was tension between Charlie and because remember that Linda Kasabian met Tex right after the Bernard Crow incident. So there was a hell of a lot of tension and conflict and, and Tex wanted to show Linda and the girls, I'm the alpha male here. I'm, I'm the man. Linda is the one who said when the when the robbery at Cielo Drive turned horribly wrong, that just kill everyone, kill them all. 
and Chex did it. And I mean, so these are things like Charlie's always talking about that Tex wasn't a man. And if you read between the lines and in my interview in Charles Manson Superstar, there's a part where he's moving his body around. Yeah, right, right. And, we and, were in, in I, tune with each other and our bodies. Yeah, I, said, I remember yeah, that. I said, yeah. I, I said, yeah, I said, what about Tex? Yep. Tex is beautiful. Yep. Tex is beautiful. We we experimented with our bodies yeah, and we that. it's clear, you know. Now, this is the thing. Dennis Wilson was an active bisexual. There's an interview even from his drunken years at the very end of his life where he tells a journalist, I was at a gay sauna today. Right. He says that sure. openly. Yep. Um, uh, and so here's what happened is Dennis, Dennis Wilson met uh, Tex and immediately invited him to stay with him. You know, under what pretext? Why? Was he with Dean you know? Morehouse at that time? Was he wasn't with Dean, with Dean Morehouse okay, yet. Okay, that, I was that, curious if maybe that uh, maybe have led led to it because of his daughter or whatever having access to Weish or that, whatever. I'm, I'm, that that played a part, but that yeah. wasn't immediate. They met alone first, and and Dennis Wilson immediately invites this this young guy come move in with me to my mansion. Right? Why? You know, and it, hyster hysterically and hilariously, in Texas memoir, he says he invited me for a cup of coffee. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think course. it was more than that. So, right. so we have to remember. I mean, and I'm going to get into this in my documentary, which I'm going to make, and I, I will maybe try to add it to it, like a brief update in the Manson file, because I don't even want to touch that again. But I might have to add. This is something I referred to about one thing that is completely ignored and misunderstood is Rudy Altabelli running basically the center of the secret gay world in Hollywood was Rudy Altabelli's college and cottage and and Cielo Drive. And that's what it was from the beginning, from soon as Rudy Altabelli moved in, who was openly gay at a time when people weren't. I mean, he was, yeah. you know, a mean spirited, bitter queen of the worst kind. And, and, you know, the Hollywood type. And that's what he was like. He was always like that. Had dirt was, on everyone kind of shit, you know? Yeah. Yes. And he was extremely lecherous to the point of abusive he would have been arrested these days. He would have been canceled. He, yeah, like, yeah. he grabbed young men in restaurants and, and you know, insisted that his clients have sex with him. Like Christopher Jones, an actor, a young, handsome actor who he had as a client, he had sex with him. Um, yeah. And he, by the way, it's Rudy Altabelli, hated Polanski, I learned from a friend of his, and really liked Sharon Tate. And Sharon Tate would confide to Rudy Altabelli about her problems with Polanski. And when they they flew together in March to Italy, apparently Sharon spent the whole trip complaining about her relationship with Roman. Right. And Rudy Altabelli, when they got to Rome, tried to set her up, matchmake her with Christopher Jones, and they had an affair in in, in Rome. Right. So, the, but the, so Rudy Altabelli was producing gay porn with a film company that he called Cottage Films. And that's a play in, in he was an Anglophile in Britain, cottaging is what they call, what they would call when gay men met at a public restroom sure. to have sex. Right. So he was making a reference to that, the Play cottage. Words there, yep. Yep. So uh, apparently not only were these sex films of Sharon Tate, these videos, and with her, with many celebrities and people, but in the cottage, Rudy Altabelli had tons of gay porn. The police never reported this. Doesn't Charlie make reference to, to that uh, occasionally just about you know, Absolutely. Knowing, knowing he, about he said it clearly. That. He, yeah, right. I mean, and of course I quizzed him on it. I mean, when I, I knew Bill Scanlon Murphy when he, I, I, I was supposed to be in that interview. I arranged that interview and I dropped out of it at the last minute because I didn't like the direction that the documentary called the man who killed the sixties was going. Right. But you know, uh, I arranged Charlie to meet Bill Scanlon Murphy and I told 
Charlie, look, be more honest with this guy. He is, I believed at that time, he's trying to tell the truth. He's not pushing Elter Skelter. Right. And they just didn't get along. Bill Scanlon, Murphy, and him, they just clashed. And unfortunately, but Charlie does in that interview. And why does everyone ignore this? He says, did you, did you know any of the people? Bill says, did you know any of the people at CLO? I knew the homosexual in the back right, right. who was making making pornography and, and drugs. And that's now that was a very important connection. Altabelli is the missing link to this whole thing. He was there when Charlie met Melcher and he saw their friendship with Melcher with Dennis Wilson. And remember, Dennis Wilson was a boyfriend of Rudy Altabelli. As hard as that is to imagine this as a couple, they had sex with each other, and they knew that Charlie was bisexual. I believe Terry Melcher was bisexual because Graham Parsons, who Terry Melcher was producing, who happens to be a friend of Phil Kaufman, you can make all those connections, a friend of the Rolling Stones, right, right. et cetera. Uh, Graham Parsons complained that when Terry Melcher was producing his album, like he was trying to produce Charlie's album, that he made a pass at him, unwelcome physical advance, and Graham Parsons had to tell him, I'm not interested. So it's crazy well, how sex and drugs, yeah. it's basically just sex and drugs and, and, and yeah. everything you and think of roll. when you, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Or actually, the drummer from Radio Werewolf, Evil Wilhelm, I will credit him with this. He said, Tex and drugs and rock and roll uh, is right, right. what it's all about. I mean, that, that's the title of this whole saga. So, you got it. It's hard for people to grasp this because it's not the story they think they know. It's about closeted gay men in the rock and roll and music world. Charlie being bisexual himself, knowing this, somewhat exploiting it, probably using it to blackmail people, knowing Charlie, uh, extorting them. I, I think capable of anything. I know I have found out there was a mafia celebrity extortion ring going back to the 50s where a guy named Johnny Stompanato who was killed supposedly by Lana Turner but not really daughter or whatever Lana Turner's daughter but actually Lana Turner killed him and, and they right. covered that up right that right. was another Hollywood murder that was totally covered up yeah. this guy and it will seem irrelevant to people who think they know the Manson story but this is important this Johnny Stompanato would lure women actresses, famous actresses, and gay men to have sex with him. And then the mafia would film it. Then they'd come back to these movie stars and say, hey, look what we have. Extort them Guess how way. much you have to pay us. Right. And this was a, and I think Charlie was very much involved with that because Johnny Stompanato worked with Mickey Cohen. And Mickey Cohen was Charlie's underworld hero, the guy, the mafia guy that, or, or Jewish mob guy that ran Los Angeles. Uh, I think Charlie was and Altabelli were somehow extorting. And Charlie admitted that he would, that somewhere out there, there's gay porn with him in it from 1967. Right. Uh, and, and I won't get into it here, but in my book, I get into how Charlie met all these closeted gay men at Universal Studios. Yeah, in yeah, he, he says that in interviews too. And again, I don't, like you were saying, I don't understand why people can't just like slow down and listen to some of these interviews, no. man. And I can no. and, and by the way, the, the, one of the people that he mentioned that he had sex with publicly in to Bill Dakota, another screaming queen who had a gossip newspaper in Los Elvis, Angeles, right? he wrote to Charlie, <laughs> he wrote Bill, he, he wrote that, uh, Robert Conrad and um, Peter Falk oh, yeah. were were involved with him. And Peter Falk, as I reveal in my book, admitted this to someone. I have confirmed it through a theatrical producer that somebody in the Abraxas Circle Facebook group knows gave me the information that 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 Peter Falk said to this theatrical producer many years later about Charlie, I did that fucker. I did that crazy fucker. Right, right. So, you know, th this is at the heart of what was covered up. 
Right. Uh, Jay Sebring, according to Bob Esty, who was a friend of Rudy Altabelli, who lived with him, was part of a bisexual cabal of people in that that is called in Hollywood the slang, the Velvet Mafia. Sure. And and uh, apparently Sebring knew Altabelli better than we realize. Yep. Um, and a, a lot a lot of other you know celebrities were involved in this. So the point is, how did these murders happen? It's because Den Charlie meets Dennis Wilson at Gary Hinman's house. Right. Gary Hinman is a bisexual who, who was in love with Bobby Beausoleil, had a crush on him. Bobby Beausoleil comes from San Francisco where he had been living with who? Kenneth Anger, who also had a crush on him. Absolutely. And and this is this is the milieu of which the murders come out of. And then and then he meets Charlie meets Dennis Wilson. They become lovers. And uh, Dennis Wilson, I believe, already knew Tex. I think that this story has been transversed. I believe Dennis Wilson already had Tex living at his house. And then Charlie met Tex. That brought in Dean Morehouse. Then None of this stuff happens without that connection. And then Dennis Wilson introduces within April and May, Charlie is brought to Elvis's house for a party, for a gambling party, because the Memphis Mafia, when, when Elvis was away, would hold these high-stake illegal gambling with cash on the table. And, and Charlie went there, and that is where he said he first met Sharon Tate at this gambling party that turned into an orgy. Yeah. That's how well he knew her. And he, at this um, high-stakes gambling session, he said jokingly to Dennis Wilson, if I win, I, I have your house. And they agreed to that. And But, you know, this is another myth. They never really lived there. They stayed there a lot. They didn't, right. it's not like the whole commune. They, they were all over the place. And, and they were not one unified Jim Jones-like exactly. military camp. They were wandering all over the place. Some of the girls had jobs that they'd come back from. I found out that Charlie in 1967 had a job at a Hollywood nightclub working, sweeping up, even while he was with the commune. They were not... Wow disassociated from the real world living out in the middle of nowhere they were part of everyday life and that's so that's important to understand so so just think about it dennis introduces charlie to in rapid succession tex sharon tate um rudy altabelli Terry Melcher, Charlene Caffritz, who plays a very important role as a, as a friend of Sharon Tate, who also was a lover of Charlie's. Right, right. Another, you know, direct link that proves these were not random strangers. These people knew each other very well. So that, you know, that's just a little bit of it. And then one thing I'm going to get into in my documentary is I now have, in the past couple of weeks, a little more absolute proof of the presence of a major movie star at Cielo Drive on the night of the murders that had to do with the cottage, with Stephen Parent and with William Gerritsen. And it may explain where was William Gerritsen right. when the murders happened. Yeah, I mean that that that's always been a huge question. Like why, you know, why he didn't get killed right. or if he I was think, even I there. Think, and, I think I have the answer, and wow, I'm putting crazy. those pieces together. So yep. now I think another the secondary thing. Uh, I don't know how much time you have, but oh, but okay. musically, yeah, musically we got to get into that. The okay, so myth number one that we've exploded that they hardly. I mean, what what is the myth of Dennis Wilson is. They met. They met because of girls, because of a hitchhiking thing. No, they met and had a homosexual affair because of drugs right. at the murder victim's house, Gary Hinman. Dennis Wilson also knew Bobby Beausoleil much better than anyone ever talks about. Bobby Beausoleil lived with Dennis right before he killed Gary Hinman. He lived 
at this second, this apartment with Greg Jacobson or this house with Greg Jacobson, Bobby Beausoleil and Kitty Lutzinger lived with Dennis Wilson and Greg Jacobson. Nobody ever talks about that. Dennis Wilson loved Bobby Beausoleil's music, thought he was very talented, jammed with him all the time, apparently got along better with him than Charlie, who was, of course, abrasive and a prima donna and difficult to work with. Uh, Bobby Beausoleil was much more professional. Right. Nobody ever talks about that. So, um, it's just so know, intense. Dennis it's so will, intense. And, and I, I, I quote in the book. These I can't read them because they're too long. But yeah. if you read my book, Dennis Wilson does. gave two interviews to the British media in 1969. Now, in those days in Los Angeles, you couldn't easily get a British music magazine. Right. These days, this whole case couldn't have happened. In these interviews in 1969, Dennis Wilson is ta- is raving, ranting and raving about how great Charlie is. How he's going to put out a, an album of his, The Wizard. Right. Uh, and then there's another lesser known interview in which Dennis talks about living with 17 space girls out in the right, desert. Right, exactly. I've read that one. And, and he, he's presenting himself as if he is Manson. He's saying, I tell them to go out and beg and bring money back to me. Uh, we all make love. And he and and Dennis Wilson, this is in 1969, before the murders happened, long before. Nobody really knew who Charlie Manson was in the public. It's an interview in an English magazine in which Dennis Wilson is spouting Manson-esque philosophy and act. And he clearly was a member of the commune. I mean, he was he wasn't right, just, right. you know, and this idea that they they went and exploited him, stole all his money. No, he he gladly as much as Sandra Good or Juanita Wildbush or any of the others gladly joined and said, here, take everything. I'm in all the way. And that, and one, another statement that, that Dennis made of many, you know, I know what really happened. Someday I'll write a book and tell. Why doesn't anyone comment on that? Yeah. He also said, me and Charlie, to a, to a rock journalist, me and Charlie, we started the family. Exactly. Uh, so his involvement and then... It's out so, there. You just have to, like, you know, be aware of it and, and you know... It's it's documented from back then, you know. Like right, and uh, Charlie said in Rolling Stone magazine, this is the weird glass ceiling about this damn thing. In Rolling Stone magazine, and I know what Charlie was like. He was malicious, mean-spirited, and he wanted to cause as much trouble as he could without really snitching. He yeah. says in, in his first major interview, which was to Rolling Stone in 1970, when they ask about, he the, the guy says, uh, you brought a bullet to Dennis Wilson. And he talks about wanting to show, wanting to, I would, if I was with Dennis now, I would like to make love to him. He says it in Rolling Stone. Right. And, and he talks about how he tried to show Dennis to calm down and, you know, and that he wrote never, never, well, uh, ceased to exist that became never learn not to love. And then that is a huge part of this whole thing. The 5,000 dollars which is a hell of a lot of money in 2023 money right. that that Dennis Wilson never paid Charlie as an agreement he's and and I have a police document from from a probation officer in which it's saying that Mr. Manson is is gaining some success as a musician he's working with the musical group the Beach Boys they're paying him $5000 right. and and so the parole and you know unlike Tom O'Neill's bullshit about they you know they let him get away with it cuz he was a CIA stooge no charlie was very charming and he presented a good case to his probation officer in LA Look, I'm working with the damn Beach Boys. I've got five thousand bucks coming. I'm selling my songs, and in the midst of the chaos of the '60s in Los Angeles, Charlie was doing pretty well, you know. Yeah. And so they they didn't you know they didn't they didn't bother him about minor infractions about having a joint or sleeping with a girl or whatever that people didn't really care about. So. You're talking about the just how, about he, the music, how he didn't get so busted, basically. This, this $5,000, Charlie, and I have a tape, which you can hear if you go to the to my YouTube channel and hear the lecture where we met. I play a cassette there in which Charlie, I ask him, 
I say to him, okay, in your Geraldo interview, you make a connection between the Beach Boys and the little black book of uh, Lino LaBianca. What in the world? I, did, I couldn't figure out what is that connection. Right. And he spent a lot of time explaining it. And it has to do with that $5,000 that Dennis Wilson owed him. Yep, yep. After, after Charlie shot Bernard Crow. A friend of Dennis Wilson's, again, why is Dennis Wilson always right there? A friend of his named Bryn Lukachevsky somehow immediately knows that Charlie shot Bernard Crow. Yeah. He calls Greg Jacobson. Greg Jacobson tells Dennis Wilson. Dennis Wilson tells Terry Melcher. And at that point, not because they don't like Charlie's music or because they think he's a nobody, because he shot a fucking drug dealer, they think, okay, uh, Charlie, we, yeah. we, can't, we, we can't work with you anymore. You, we, can't, we can't deal with this. Right. And he, even a weeks before, they were still recording his music. Yeah. It was that incident that made them get cold but they still were friendly to yeah, him by even, the way. After, just, even after that they still hung out with him even though if you just yeah follow, they hung out with him in a friendly way for right. a long time but they just said look i'm we can't we can't help you because you've shot some you know, and this was a drug dealer they knew of course right. they knew who he was right. so I mean, didn't even that incident, go up to barker ranch after like that late when well, they were that, all the that, way that's what danny DiCarlo claims that right. that yeah. jerry melcher was seen there yeah. um and i have to say i charlie occasionally spoke ill of terry melcher but for the most part he did not and this is too complicated to get into. I get it into the book. I believe that they actually protected each other. Yep. I believe Terry Melcher didn't say half of what he could have said in court, obviously. But I think also because of that, Charlie never really spilled the beans on how deeply Terry Melcher was involved in all this. Well, he mentions his mom, Doris Day, in interviews and, uh, you know, other old time, you know, Hollywood act like Lou Costello, right. he mentions him he's like, oh, you know, and then he assumes I'm guessing that they're connected to the mob or he's smart enough to know them like mobs connection to the. Well, they were. Well, of course, that's that's the overlying thing is in the 60s and in the 50s and in the 40s, Hollywood was run by the mob. And Charlie knew right. that. Right. And, and it, it was obvious. And that's another big thing that's being covered up. But so this five thousand dollars, Charlie needed to pay the straight Satans who were extorting him. Right. And at, at the time, he was extorting, they were extorting him because of his involvement in the Hinman slashing yes. and the Crow shooting, which Danny DiCarlo knew about because Charlie asked Danny DiCarlo to go with him before he asked TJ. Right. So he knew about that incident. And Danny DiCarlo started extorting Charlie. So Charlie didn't want to go back to prison. He said, you no, these, these crappy vans and that you stole in car for you stole from, from, uh, Hinman, that's not enough. I want more and more and more. Right. And Char and that was just at the point where Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher and Jacobson are saying, we don't want to work with you. We're not giving you more money because they had been fronting him cash as like an advance for his album. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, you pay us back later. Here's 2000 bucks. Here's this, here's that. Yeah. And they stopped. So he runs out of money just at the time when he has to pay the straight Satans. So he goes to Nick Grillo and the, the, you can hear this on my, on the Nicholas Shrek channel, YouTube. I played it at this 50th anniversary speech that I gave. Charlie says he went to Nick Grillo and said, you know, Hey, Paisano, you, you owe me some money. And Nick Grillo says, I don't know, you shit. You didn't sign a contract, get out of here, and says, I'll call New York, yeah, meaning exactly. I'll call the mob. Charlie says, I'll call New York. And according to Charlie, and it's on this tape, he tells me that he then, he, that he took, he just wanted that 5,000 bucks, and, and Grillo refused to give it to him, and that Charlie took a garbage can and poured it out on his desk and said, they call me the garbage man in this town, and then left. And then he, then he called the secretary of Nick Grillo, who was the Beach Boys business manager and accountant, and, and said, who did he call? He said he was going to call someone in New York. Who did he call? And, and this was answering, by the way, how was the LaBianca murder connected to 
the little black book and the beach boys right. and this was his law his punchline was she said he didn't call new york he called somewhere in hollywood and i said do you mean like las Feliz? what are you saying do you mean la bianca what he, he said and charlie said to me and you can hear it i'm i don't know yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not going to name any names. You, he said. You know. I'm never going to snitch. Exactly. So what else can that mean? Except there was a direct connection between Nick Grillo and Lino LaBianca. That yeah. is Charlie's implication. Yeah. So it, that, a lot of people focus on Cielo Drive, and you know they assume a bunch of motives onto that, but not too many people. Uh, think about the LaBianca case, and it's 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 far it's more still complicated, connected. far more mysterious. Right, yeah. right. But it's still in the same vein that we're discussing: music industry uh, connections and uh, well, uh, Hollywood uh, yeah. cover-ups overall, basically. Yeah. You know. Well, the LaBianca thing—that that's a whole other show in itself, or yeah. ten shows, because right. it's so complicated. Yep. The, I mean, the LaBianca thing gets deeply into the mafia, gets deeply into. Um, connections on every side of the La Biancas. Both neighbors, both had a connection to the Spawn Ranch. Now, from 1968, this is Blue Cheer's version of Summertime Blues. connections and uh the the false uh narrative that we've all been you know fed right. by the media is you know number you know one of the number ones is that charlie was a failed musician who felt right. uh like just slighted he may have felt slighted later on but he was certainly not a failed musician someone who gets out of uh federal prison uh for as long as he was and to immediately have all these Amazing, basically the highest connections you can get in the music did, industry. Not, not only not a failed me, I mean, I lived in the Los Angeles music world for many years. And, and yeah, let's put that into context, what you just said. That's a good point. He gets out of prison in March 1967. Kaufman, Phil Kaufman, a drug dealer who already knew Jay Sebring and Steve McQueen before he met Charlie, by the way. Right. Uh, Greg Kaufman, uh, I mean, not Greg Kaufman, Phil, Phil Kaufman. I'm comparing those two liars, Jacobson and Kaufman. <laughs> they both remind me of each other. Um, Kaufman says to Gary Stromberg, who is who is hired by Uni Records, by who? To, to cover, to because Uni Records, the square record company, they want to reach out into the hippie psychedelic market that is just becoming lucrative in 1967. Right. So Universal starts their youth record company. A guy named Russ Regan, who is that, was the guy that named the Beach Boys a few years earlier. Right. When, the, when the Pendletons came to him, this band of brothers and cousins said, hey, we have a song called Surfing USA. He said, I, that Pendleton's name sucks. Why don't you call yourself the Beach Boys to tie into the surf thing? Sure. Wow. That's the guy who 
Gary Stromberg brings Charlie to his office at Universal Studios a few months after getting out of prison. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And Charlie, Charlie sits on the record executive's desk in Lotus position and plays his guitar. The guy says he's like a little bit take. He thinks, well, this guy has charisma. He's got something going for him. And this is not a small thing in 1967. He says to Gary Stromberg, here's 150 bucks, which is a lot then, actually. Yeah. Go to Gold Star Studios, pretty much the best studio where Phil Spector recorded, where Sonny and Cher recorded, the Beach Boys. Right. And by the way, Charlie had been there in 1960, had met Phil Spector and Sonny Bono there at an earlier recording session that he sneaked into because he was trying to pick up some girl and Charlie took his guitar and acted like, yeah, I'm with the band and went in there to talk to this girl and met Phil Spector and that's where he met Sonny Bono another mafia-connected Italian entertainer who knew Charlie very well for years. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, the connection's there. So, But Charlie is not a failure. He's immediately... He walks in, plays a few songs. Russ Reagan, a very seasoned, cynical record executive, says, here's some money. Let's see if this guy can do a single, and the single does well. We'll put out an album. And... The only reason it didn't happen is Gary Stromberg was friends with Hugh Masekela, who was a South African trumpet player. And you can hear him on the birds. Do you want to be a rock and roll star? There's a trumpet break. He played at the Monterey Film, uh, Monterey Pop Festival and was a big sensation. He was at the Whiskey. He was one of like the first... Um, like world music of, of, of like world world music yeah yeah and so now gary stromberg says to charlie okay we like your stuff we'll do a single come in the recording studio charlie comes in there's a black guy south african trumpeter charlie apparently wasn't hateful about it but he said no i don't I don't want to mix music. This is not African music. I'm playing white music. And of course, Gary Stromberg was a very liberal, extremely liberal guy who was one of the first people in in the white show business world who married a black woman. And by the way, even that connects to Charlie. Tiny Tim, who knew Charlie, told me that when he worked on Laughing. Um, Gary Stromberg's wife was the token black comedian on Laugh-In. Oh, and in 1968, they compared notes. Tiny Tim said that they were saying, who's the most eccentric person you've met in show business? And Stromberg's girlfriend and Tiny Tim both came up with the same name, a guy that they had recently met named Charlie Manson. Wow, wow, yeah. So every, everything so connects. Entwined. So entwined. Do you think it's and just Tiny, because- Tiny Tim was on Reprise Records, Frank Sinatra's record company, which Neil Young gave a tape to Mo Austin, the head of Reprise Records, said, here's my discovery, Charlie Manson. So Manson has two episodes. I want to make this very clear. Gary Stromberg loves him. Russ Reagan loves him, says, let's do something with this music. But Charlie fucks it up in his usual self-destructive way. You could say it's admirable that he stuck to his guns or self-destructive either way. He said, no, I'm not going to work with you, Masekela. Then they hire him to be the technical advisor on a Jesus film. Same thing happens. Gary Stromberg wants the Jesus character to be black. Charlie says, fuck it, I'm gone. Yeah. And But that could have been... And then um, Gary Stromberg introduces Charlie to Jerry Heller, who later became this big music producer who who had nwa who mentioned charlie manson in their most well-known song um and jerry heller was at that time representing bringing pink floyd to and so charlie was not even weird compared to pink floyd and so heller and stromberg were like the first altabelli and melcher he already been through that in 1967. A major manager, a major producer saying, yeah, we like your stuff. And then Charlie fucking it up in his usual, you know, manner that he did. Yeah. But he could have had a record out in by, by the spring of 67. Yeah. So that fails. And then he meets Dennis Wilson. You know, 
know, and then no, then Neil Young, a second chance. He meets Neil Young independently in Topanga. Uh, Probably at the Roadhouse, maybe. Huh? At the Topanga Corral, maybe. At the Topanga Corral. Yeah, yeah. Neil Young, and, and that's where Charlie knew the band Spirit. He knew the band Canned Heat. He opened one night. Charlie did a solo opening act for Canned Heat which apparently he went on too long and Bob Height said, get the hell off the stage. <laughs> and they had like a confrontation on the stage, but they were friends. Right. He, you know, Charlie knew all those people. He knew Dean Stockwell. He knew Peter Fonda. He knew Jim Morrison. He knew Pamela Corson. All of these people hung out. Well, what was the Topanga Corral is the roadhouse that the doors are singing about the roadhouse blues where, Absolutely. you know, we're going to have a real good time. Well, they hung out there with Charlie. Charlie knew those people. Um, Dean Stockwell, who was like an uh, actor who then got into the hippie world at Topanga Canyon and knew Peter Fonda, he was apparently either next door to Cielo Drive and coming out of the neighbor's house and saw Tex that night of the murders. Tech, Dean Stockwell knew Charlie. Dean Stockwell knew Sharon Tate. He's another connection. And he was right there and apparently saw Tex and, and would have known the murder, who, who committed the murders, another person who didn't reveal it to the police. Wow. So then, so think about that. He gets out of prison. Universal Records wants to sign him. He fucks that up for himself. Neil Young gives it to Mo Austin at Reprise Records, who, by the way, confirmed in the 80s that he still had the reel-to-reel -reel tape, which I'd love to hear, whatever that was, oh of Charlie's demo tape for, for Reprise Records. And that's Frank Sinatra's record company. Who's Frank Sinatra? The guy that introduced Jay Sebring to show business, the guy who, you know, the mafia's main connection to Hollywood. There's who's married to Mia Farrow, who is in Rosemary's Baby, on and on and on. Back and to on. Polanski. Yep, yep. And then, and then you get the part that people know about that he meets um, Dennis Wilson and gets involved with Melcher and everything we've discussed. So, of course, also from 1968, we have My Way by Frank Sinatra. The end is near, and so I face. The final curtain My friend I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived A life that's full I traveled each And every highway And more much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, saw it through. Without exemption, I planned each charted course. It's such an interesting web uh, of just crazy characters, and you can, if you, you can see how uh, they would want it covered up. You know, the the industry as a whole would right. want this stuff covered right. up. Right. Well, so on every perfect. on every level, but also what it isn't just that they want to cover up their embarrassment of being associated with this person so heavily after after his arrest i mean no nobody thought he was particularly threatening strange or anything before his arrest it was the way the media turned him into this demon and how he played up that part that made people then want to distance themselves from him
I should really get into the lost music of Charlie and the Beach Boys. I know for a fact the Beach Boys have in their archive hours of Charlie playing with the Beach Boys. Right. Uh, there is a 16-minute tape that, uh, you know, one of these old reel-to-reel tapes that has Charlie and Brian Wilson singing together mm. as Brian Wilson is playing a new Chamberlain synthesizer, which was like wow. like state-of-the-art new yeah. electronic synthesizer. And, and Charlie and Brian are recognizably singing together for 16 minutes. There are many other songs. And, you know, on one of these Beach Boys compilations, as they scrape the bottom of the barrel of their everything they've ever recorded for every scraping and every last note, they accidentally, I believe, put out a song that has Charlie playing guitar on it. Um, so I can I can give you the link to that and you can play that. Well, I know the wind is my hand, is my hand. Let it blow, let it blow. No, uh, that, that's that's on one of their compilations, and it's clear it's Dennis Wilson singing. It's clearly a Manson-esque lyric, and you can hear Charlie's very distinctive strumming. And somebody in the Beach Boys camp confirmed, yeah, that's Charlie. There's a ton of other stuff. They they were recording right before the murders. It wasn't, you know, Dennis Wilson never kicked Charlie out of his house. They were friends. They continued to be friends. Charlie talked to Dennis after the murders even, came over to his house with Stephanie Schramm. I mean, they had a lot of tension, but they were still on speaking terms. There was never any breakup between them. There was never any throwing them out or realizing that they're evil or any of that. And they were. And the final thing I'll say, they were working on this album at Brian Wilson's house with Steve Desper recording... And Terry Melcher actually recorded Charlie. This is a big thing. This idea, oh, he never gave him a recording contract. He had the Wrecking Crew be the backup band for Charlie Manson, and they recorded several songs together. Yeah. And, you know, this is known. No, they. you can hear members of the Wrecking Crew, Carol Kay. I believe there's one of the other guitarists as Jerry well. Cole. Jerry Cole. Jerry Cole. Yeah. Confirming yeah. it. And Charlie confirmed it. Now, for some reason, Melcher and Charlie both didn't like it. Charlie felt it was too overproduced. Melcher felt it was too raw. Then Melcher said, all right, we'll do one last thing. Let me try to record you live at the Spawn Ranch. This lie that Melcher says that, oh, yeah, we went to audition him in June of 69. He'd already known him since April of 68. I know. And was it's a, such an unbelievable lie. Produced by Greg Jacobson and released in 1977, just six years before his tragically early death, this is Dennis Wilson performing Farewell My Friend from his album Pacific Ocean Blue. the next day after Cielo Drive, 
Nick Grillo, who, as you recall, Charlie confronted and said, pay me 5,000 bucks that you owe me, said to Desper, Desper has confirmed this, the day after the murders, get that Manson tape out of Brian's house now. Right, right. So that means the Beach Boys knew what was behind that murder. Yeah, and how, it, yeah, and how entangled they were. In, in oh, yeah. And, and I even get into in the book that Carl Wilson at one point before the murders had heard there's going to be some kind of violence and was nervous enough to be sitting at his front door with a rifle with some other friends of his in the music business. Actually, one of them being Dean Martin's son, a friend of J.C. Bring. Drug J.C. Bring and Charlie. Yeah. They sat there with guns waiting for something to happen. There was Jim Morrison said, apparently had talked about there's going to be a major violent action. Wow. He knew Charlie. So yeah. so Nick Grillo, the Beach Boys manager, removed the Manson tapes the day after the murders. Incredible. And that tells you how complicit, how many secrets were, were covered up. Amazing. Thanks again to Nicholas Schreck. You can find all his books on Amazon. Follow him on Spotify and on YouTube. You can also find his music on Bandcamp. Nicholas Schreck, S-C-H-R-E-C-K. From the 2020 album, The Illusionist, this is Nicholas Schreck performing this hideous thing. All is None is written and produced by myself, Jason Hay. Thanks for listening. I hit your ride.